to Grizz Greats, the Coaching Tree Podcast, Episode 8. This one with Wayne Tinkle. I'm Ryan Tutel alongside Colton Nuanas, and thank you so much for being with us here on the podcast. And Coulter, Wayne Tinkle, one of the all-timers at the University of Montana, a guy who is physically as large as the personality that he brought to the head coaching position for the Grizzlies, widely loved for his charisma and effusive personality, being energetic, and an all-around good guy in kind of every sense. He's a guy who took over for Larry Kristoviak. This was coming off of the season, you may recall, that the Grizzlies went to back-to-back NC2A tournaments and then won a game in the tournament, but a little bit of a struggle for Coach Tinkle early on. Did not make the postseason in his first three years as a head coach, but Coulter in three of the following four seasons, they didn't only go to the postseason, they won the Big Sky Conference tournament, went to the NC2A tournament, they were the number one team in the regular season, and then made an appearance in the conference in back-to-back seasons 2012 and 2013. All said, Wayne Tinkle, eight years at the University of Montana, before taking over at Oregon State, where he is still the head man for the Beavers. Wayne Tinkle, at the same time, spent more time in Missoula than anyone that's part of this coaching tree and also has been more places through basketball than anyone that's ever been a Grizz. Yeah, interesting. From 1985 to 1989, he was a great player, scored 1,500 points, played for both Mike Montgomery and Stu Morrill, and then he embarked on a career that started in Topeka, Kansas with the Topeka Sizzlers, and then took him to Belgium, Sweden, Spain, Italy, Greece, Granada, and with stops in Rapid City and Las Vegas in between. Now let me say, nothing but love for Topeka, Kansas. I know we have a huge <laughs> following in Topeka, but people who are like, well, I don't know, do you want to go play internationally instead of playing in America? Would you rather play in Belgium and Greece and Italy and Turkey or wherever it is or for the Topeka Sizzlers, you know? <laughs> the Topeka Sizzlers or the Onyx Concerta in Italy. I don't know, man. Pretty tough choice. Pretty tough. Hey, why don't be, why, why not be Wayne Tinkle and just do all of it? But right? Wayne Tinkle then returns to his alma mater and his assistant for Don Holst is an assistant for Pat Kennedy, is an assistant for Larry Kristoviak, and then finally gets his shot. And I think that one little detail that people forget, Coach Tinkle, he didn't actually finish his degree because he was playing professionally for so long. And so then when he, that was the one thing that was holding him back from becoming the head coach, but then testament because to Because you're, you're required, right, to have a four-year degree to be a head coach. He did, and yeah. then he finished his degree, and I remember it was a great accomplishment. I remember when he was an assistant, and he was so proud. And I know a lot of people were proud of him, too, and then it opened this door then he gets a chance to take over for Larry Kristoviak. And we've talked to Jordan Haskett as well as Andrew Strait, who are two guys that played for both Kristoviak and Tinkle. And they both echoed similar sentiments that it was interesting at first because Larry Kristoviak and Wayne Tinkle had a very definitive good cop, bad cop. And Wayne Tinkle's the nicest guy in the world. Right. And I think finding his way as a head coach as somebody that had to make all the tough decisions, that had to be a little bit more tough on his players – I think it was hard for him because it's just not really how he is. Well, and to make an analogy that isn't exactly right, but if you're a coworker with somebody and then you get promoted and now you're that person's boss, to be in a different role in terms of what it is that you're doing, but in having the history of a relationship, and you're talking about all these kids who were here, Andrew Strait, Jordan Haskin, and others, who you had this certain relationship with as an assistant coach that now just out of necessity has to change for you as a head coach. and. You know, it's tough, I think, at times to try and figure out for both parties exactly how to navigate that. And uh, and I think you, you maybe saw a little of that early on in, in, his, in his career. And also just being a first-year head coach, but again, got the thing absolutely rolling. I also think it's worth noting for, for Coach Tingle, the one guy who goes from, from Holst and making a tournament, but a controversial, you know, having been fired, then to be the one guy who's retained by Pat Kennedy, who's hired from the outside, you know, outside the family and so so on, have those kind of tumultuous couple of years. And then Larry Kristoviak comes in and you're retained yet again. First of all, it's a testament to him. I mean, this is not a lineage of head coaches that is in a straight line, you know. And so to be an assistant coach who each one of those different styles and types of coaches says, we got to keep this guy here, I think it does say it speaks to the quality and the relationship and uh, and the roots and foundation that Coach Tinkle had 
at the and has at the University of Montana and in Missoula in general, and also just the type of coach he is. And then again, like you said, he finally got his shot, and when he got it rolling, three out of four. I mean, I don't know how many teams out of one bid leagues have ever done that going to the Big Sky or going to the NC two A tournament. All these guys in this coaching tree are connected, and that's why the coaching tree is so strong and has been so prolific. But you can't really find anybody that's touched directly as many as these uh, as Wayne Tinkle has. He played for Mike Montgomery and Stu Morrow. Blaine Taylor was an assistant during that time. He didn't play or coach for Blaine Taylor, but he was around Blaine when Blaine was an assistant under Stu Morrow. Then he coached under all three of those guys we just mentioned and then took over himself. So he has direct work-like relationships with every single one of these guys. That in itself is fascinating. We talked about how sometimes you have to have a dip to start to make an ascent, and Larry Kostovic was the one that really punched through that ceiling at first. But Coach Tinkle's teams, because of the pizzazz that they played with and the the absolute top-level talent that they had, starting with Will Cherry and Kareem Jamar, they were the first Montana team. Larry Kostovic's teams were recognized on a national level because of what they accomplished in the postseason. Wayne Tinkle's teams were the first Montana teams I can remember that were getting real hype during the regular season on a national level. He had the Grizz in the mid-major top 25 for several years in a row. I think it came to a peak with them being ranked 12th or 13th. Those last couple years at Montana, I mean 25-6, and six, two years in a row. That 50-win span was the school record right. for a long time until the last group broke it by winning 52 games. But in a mid-major league where you can, where it's very hard to get teams to come play you on your home court or in the non-conference, and then you're taking everybody's best shot during conference play, 50 and 12 in two years, that's a striking number. It's astounding. And then they also set the Big Sky Conference record for consecutive wins in league play between 2011, 2012, 2012, 2013. Uh, they won 25 consecutive conference games. A span over those two years, 34-2 and two overall in Big Sky Conference play. So even though it did take a, a couple to get it going, once they got it rolling, Wayne Tingle had it rolling as much as anybody Montana basketball has ever had. Grizz Greats, the Coaching Tree podcast, is brought to us in part by Berkshire Hathaway and Coulter Mike Nugent down at Berkshire. First of all, nobody more invested as a as a fan and a follower in Montana Grizzly men's basketball than Mike Nugent. He's also just as invested in helping individuals and businesses find the exact right thing to suit their needs, whether it's a house, whether it's a piece of commercial real estate, whether it's land. He knows the ins and outs better than anybody in western Montana, Mike Nugent at Berkshire Hathaway. I don't think there was anybody that was more disappointed in the Grizz missing those two free throws down the stretch against Northern Arizona. I don't think there was anybody more pleasantly uh, surprised and affirmed with the Grizz great win two nights later against Sacramento State. Mike lives and breathes this stuff. He's been a longtime Grizz basketball supporter, season ticket holder. Mike Nugent at Berkshire Hathaway knows buying and selling is a huge decision. So if you have any questions, big or small, give Mike a call. He'll answer anything for you. If you're just starting out, you want to know what you can get pre-approved for, or you want to know more about the Missoula area, you're dealing in commercial or residential real estate, you're buying or selling, no matter what you're doing, Mike Nugent has you covered. You can reach Mike, 406-531-1802. That's 406-531-1802. Mike Nugent, Berkshire Hathaway Real Estate, your local real estate experts. And now, our conversation with former University of Montana head coach Wayne Tinkle. We hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we enjoyed having it with Coach Tinkle. Our thanks to him for taking the time out and doing it. And now, please enjoy Grizz Greats to Coaching Tree, Episode 8, with Wayne Tinkle. Well, welcome to another episode of Grizz greats the coaching tree, all the coaches, the University of Montana men's basketball program, which has been prolific over the years. And now we welcome in the man who was the head coach at the University of Montana and is now the head coach at Oregon State University, Wayne Tinkle. Coach Tinkle, thanks so much for being with us. How are you? Hey, doing great, and it's a pleasure to be with you guys. Well, we're certainly happy to have you here, no doubt about it. And uh, we got so very much to get to, of course. But the thing we wanted to start off with you today is how did you get to Missoula? I mean, we, you went there to play basketball for Mike Montgomery and then later for Stu Morrill, but you're you know from Wisconsin, originally born in Milwaukee, and then we're in Spokane playing high school ball. So what was it about Missoula and the pitch that Mike Montgomery gave you that got you into uh, the University of Montana initially? Boy, it seems like yesterday was a long time ago. 
you know, the, the AAU circuit wasn't uh, nearly the level that it is now. So uh, I was a little bit of, you know, an unknown, but known in, in the Northwest. Visited Loyola Marymount, had had offers from Marquette, Oklahoma State. Uh, Washington State's program was a little bit down in Gonzaga back then, but Gonzaga was another school I visited. And I almost canceled my visit to Montana. Uh, all I knew about Missoula, it was a stop along the way when we moved from Chicago to Spokane and then made the trek back to see relatives a time or two. And, and I was like, man, what is there for me? And and my dad said, well, what's attracted you to Montana to this point? And I said, well, I, I love the coaching staff. And he said, well, you're telling yourself something, so you owe him a visit. And then I just fell in love with it once I got to campus, met the guys, met the coaches. I fell in love with uh, the kind of, you know, the chip on your shoulder uh, attitude. And you had to have that with the old copper and gold uniforms you wore <laughs> and uh, just fell in love with everything. So uh, I quickly shut it down. And, and that was at the time when they first started, I think, fall signing uh, in November. And then, uh, boy, I started off having a big senior year and started getting letters from, from all over the country, but was happy with my decision and then never, never looked back. What was Missoula like back then? It's crazy to think that Missoula is fast-paced now, but back then everything was at a snail's pace. I mean, uh, shoot, you, you you knew all your professors. You, you knew the police force. <laughs> I'm a good way from playing <laughs> Now, wait, playing wait. How did you, how did you know all the, the policemen, summer. coach? I mean, how did that come about? That that was a softball games in the summertime. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. And uh, it just was a diff- different deal, you know, and, and gosh, I, I couldn't imagine back then with uh, with social media, and you know, video phones and all that. But it was a great place to go to school because you could focus on your academics, you could focus on athletics, you know, and there wasn't too much trouble to get into. So uh, that was a, a different time for sure. When Mike Montgomery was sitting there recruiting you, when he comes in your house, comes in your living room, or calls you on the phone, whatever, what was his recruiting pitch? What do you remember about just his recruiting style? Well, he talked about his coaching staff and uh, Stu Morrill and, you know, the ability they had to develop big men. And I think that's what got my attention. You know, at the time, they were knocking off Idaho when Idaho was, was seemed like every year ranked in the top 25. Same with Washington State. I remember I had a good buddy of mine who was pushing Montana, and he would bring the clippings from their wins into our chemistry class uh, after games. And my math teacher, who was my JV basketball coach, actually played football for Jack Swarthout uh, at Montana. And so he was kind of pushing pushing them. And then old Joe Glenn. Joe Glenn was on the football staff. Then he came through Ferris High School to recruit. And he saw me walking down the hallway, and, and he had to stop and sell Coach Montgomery and his program. And I said, after about a 20-minute talk, I said, I appreciate it, Coach Glenn, but I've heard all that before. <laughs> so <laughs> it was, it was kind of a, a, a great uh, – they just kind of wrapped their arms around you. Anybody that had any kind of contact or connection to Montana reached out and was a fun process. And then, obviously, Coach Montgomery was so highly respected even back then those conversations that we had were great and when they did the uh the home visit but Stu Morrill and Bob Neal too did a bunch of legwork I mean they wore out uh I-90 between Missoula and Spokane uh, as much as they could to come watch us play and really made us feel wanted and that's that's uh what uh what sold uh the program you know and it's interesting too because ultimately it would be Stu Morrill who who you know you graduated with in terms of the head coach there what was it like transitioning as a player from playing for Mike Montgomery to Stu Morrill? You know, it was tough, and, and, and this was something that I went through as a coach later on that I learned from, but, you know, when, when Coach Montgomery left, we, we, were all, we were all a little bit upset. You know, we thought he was turning his back on us, didn't believe in, you know, the, the younger group, you know, that, that was kind of coming up and, you know, looking for greener pastures. So we were a little bitter, you know, and then it wasn't a slam-dunk deal for – for Stu to get the job, which we were upset with, you know, we thought it was a, a no-brainer for them to immediately name him head coach. But they went through a little bit of a process, and he ended up uh, earning the position. And then we were ready to go to battle. I mean, we loved Stu. 
uh, every one of us would have run through a brick wall and then asked him if it was fast enough. And just because he, he was a guy that would get after you a little bit, but, but really, really made you feel like he cared. So you wanted to go that extra distance for him and did a great job. And obviously as he moved on to Colorado state and Utah state proved uh, to everybody what a great coach he was. And, and we knew that early on. So it was a tough period. And, and then, you know, getting, getting back and connected to coach Montgomery years later, uh, obviously we understood, uh, as we matured, you know, that, uh, he was trying to get to, uh, a more competitive level and he did a great job at Stanford and at Cal. And it's, it's kind of funny that, you know, how you have that relationship with your dad and it's kind of father son till you hit a certain age and then it's kind of, you know, a couple of buddies and, and that's what it seems like it's gotten to with, uh, with coach Montgomery and most of his former players here, you know, in the last decade or so. You know, I wanted to ask you a little bit even more about that because it is such an interesting dynamic in all of college sports where coaches go and to recruit these kids, I mean, you want to connect with them and really connect with them on a meaningful level. I mean, you're not just trying to sell them something. You really want them to participate in what it is that you're trying to build, but also you have a life to live, decisions to make. You've experienced this yourself. But what was it? What is it about that? I mean, how hard is that to do to try and get kids to buy in, understanding that you are also, you know, have a future and and uh, you know have have a life to live yourself, and and especially like you said with Mike Montgomery at that time. Yeah, it's tough because you're sold when you're a recruit on just the the commitment and the level of commitment from the staff and the players and the program to to make it successful and keep it successful then that's, that chain's broken. So it's tough to deal with when you're 18 to 22 years old. And, you know, I, I remember Coach Montgomery was swept right away, and I don't think we ever really had an official team meeting to tell us that he was leaving. And, and you know, it was tough to take. Now when I got older, I understood why. You know, the next team wants you there, and they want you to keep it quiet until you have the press conference on their campus. And, you know, in my case, when, when I came to Oregon State, it was after our school year ended. So it was late May and we got out of school in early May. So, you know, I couldn't say anything to the team until we had our press conference when I was in Corvallis. And then when I went back to kind of clean out the office, you know, everybody was gone. So that, that was tough because you, you want to be able to have some closure. And I know, shoot, we, we had gone through a lot and had some success our last few years and it was a tight knit group. You know, and there was probably, to be honest, some some relationships there with with me and some of our players that you know were altered a little bit. And and you know, I reached out by phone, but that's not the same as kind of having that last huddle and and kind of sharing why you're doing what you're doing. It's it's a tough tough circumstance, but the reason you you, you move on is because you had success, and you've got to appreciate that. And you know, when we recruit these players, we we sell our commitment to them. Not everybody does it that way. Um, you know, they just they want you to just show up and perform come come game time, but we really invest in the total individual. We're trying to develop them as students, as people, as basketball players, obviously. And so when you, you really invest that much time and commitment, um, it, it's tough when those things happen, but when they happen, it's usually because there's been success. So, uh, you know, when, when everybody settles in and matures a little bit, I think there's a lot more understanding. Who do businesses throughout the Pacific Northwest turn to for innovative internet and voice solutions? Blackfoot. Our cybersecurity, network uptime, ergo, and SD-WAN solutions ensure your organization is online all the time. Learn how Blackfoot can enable your business to move forward. Call 406-541-5000 or visit goblackfoot.com slash grizzgreats. Blackfoot. Connect to more. What do you remember from playing in the Big Sky back then? What was the league like, and who were some of your main rivals, some of the guys that you relished going against? Man, there were some battles. I mean, you look back then when Boise State, Nevada, you know, were, were in the conference, and um, obviously now Idaho's back in both sports, but there was not a night off. I mean, I remember Northern Arizona was a powerhouse for a while. Of course, Weber State had some good years. Nevada and Boise, I mean, just every night you you were in for it. And uh, I know as a as a player and, and as a post player, when the game was a lot more physical, you know, I, I loved it because, you know, teams were trying to get more athletic back then. I know Idaho, you know, when Tim Floyd and Kermit Davis came in, um, they brought a lot of guys from 
different parts of the country than we were used not used to playing against. And um, I love that physical aspect. I, I joke with the officials nowadays that I'd never be able to play in today's game just because there's not a lot of contact involved. But uh, some heated rivals, you know, I know early in my career at Montana with Coach Montgomery, we, we had won the regular season but lost in the tournament. So we never got to the NCAA. And then with the transition after losing such great players like Larry Kriskowiak and uh, Larry McBride and Scott Zanins that, you know, we, we really had a bunch of young guys, and, and we competed and finished in the top two or three each year, but we never won that tournament to try to get to the postseason. And so uh, we enjoyed the experience and everything, obviously, but there was always that little bit of disappointment that we didn't get to the NCAAs, but that was quickly, quickly rewarded, um, you know, obviously as an assistant coach and head coach at Montana, being able to go several times. But uh, it's been interesting to see the landscape of the big sky, not just by – you know, who's in it, but uh, the way the game's changed uh, and how that's all evolved. Coach, traveling around the world playing basketball seems like maybe the greatest life in the world, but of course with a family and, uh, you know, kids and all that stuff, maybe it's maybe it's more romantic than what the reality of the situation actually is. But what was that like for you to be a professional basketball player internationally? Oh, it was great. It was great. You know, and I was just good enough to get cut by three NBA teams, but being able to to travel the world and basically, you know, we considered a paid vacation. But there were some frustrating times. You know, you're you hear the horror stories about you know not getting paid on time and being a couple of months late and players getting cut if you had one bad game. So a lot of volatility there. But you know, the great thing for me, if I'd have gone over there single, I don't know that I would have survived. I might still be in jail. Just because, <laughs> Just just because there's so many frustrations, you know, with the, the way the game was coached, the fact that they didn't want the Americans to try to offer any opinions, you know, there were some frustrating times. I remember a time or two, I'd kiss my wife and kids goodbye to go to practice, and I was home a half hour later. It's like, what the heck? Did they cancel practice? I said, no, but I did. I walked out. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and it was great to have. You know, Lisa just, you know, hey, come on, let's keep things in perspective. we got a family here. Uh, and it really helped me kind of grow up and mature as a professional. And then, you know, the, having the, the, I guess, the reputation, you know, as, as being a consummate pro is what allowed me to play for so long, you know, at the highest levels over there. Just the way I handled my business and stayed out of trouble and did it the right way. Um, although I do remember a time with one team, it seemed like, Right when we got paid, the next week we would be late for two months again. They they were almost three months late throughout the year. And finally, I'd had two other Americans that I was helping groom over there. And I said, listen, we're, we're not going to practice on Monday. And I, I organized a strike. And they weren't sure what to do. And I said, listen, I'm going to be in Barcelona with my family. We've put up with enough here. And sure enough, it hit all the, the national papers and because at that point, I was probably seven, eight years into my career. So for, for someone um, like me to make that stand really made a point. And sure enough, the team found a new sponsor within a day. And uh, our whole team got compensated. And we didn't have any more issues the rest of the year. So that was kind of an interesting part uh, that I haven't told that story to too many people. But, you know, learned a lot of lessons. But, man, you talk about. I mean, playing in Athens, Greece, and all over Spain, and outside Naples, Italy, Stockholm, Sweden, and 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 bringing the kids and the and the wife with along for the ride was really an enjoyable experience. Now, Lisa will tell you a different story because she was the one having to fly over there with three kids and fly home with three kids without any help. But all in all, a great experience, and we talk about it uh, all the time when we're together as a family. And the neat thing is. We went back to Spain on a foreign tour with our team a couple of years ago, and we hit several of the towns that I played in. We hope to do that when we go in a couple more years, go to a couple different countries um, that I played in, and just not just to have a reunion tour for us, but to kind of show our guys some really neat areas and, and really the opportunity that's out there, along with the educational experience of learning other cultures. Is there a country that was one of your favorites? I mean, you probably have great memories from all four. Yeah, great memories. You know, honestly, we we didn't we didn't really enjoy the, the team we were with in in uh, Athens, but it's still a beautiful country and the people were great. But 
loved Spain. And of course, we were there for seven years, the most the most of any. But that's a place that we were ever in a position to get a second home. That's where it would be. But I don't know how realistic that is. But we love the people there, the lifestyle, the attitude uh, around how you live your life. Uh, we were treated very well. So uh, that's probably our sentimental favorite. Well, I mean, Coach Tingle needs a siesta. That's what it is. You know, you gotta... <laughs> well, heck, yeah. I didn't mind that at all. And, and, and then di- dinner starting at 11 o'clock, I mean, uh, shoot, that, that means you can sleep in. No, we got, we got, we got to enjoy life in Spain, and uh, that's where we learned about good fish and good wine, too. So, You mentioned Lisa bringing the kids back and forth. But you guys always made your home in Missoula, or at least from all everything yeah. I remember. So, what about yeah. Missoula? Why, why did you want to raise your family here, even when you were halfway around the world for a good decade plus? Yeah, well, you know, it's kind of interesting. The first few years, I, I tell our players once once they graduate and they, and they're trying to get a professional career going that you know they they can't they can't expect to have everything right away. I remember, you know, my first year, I had been invited to the NBA pre-draft camp, you know, which is a big deal. And I broke my foot playing in a spring tournament and I missed that camp. And so, you know, I, I didn't get drafted, but I had a bunch of invites to some summer leagues and was with the Milwaukee Bucks in the summer league, but the Seattle Supersonics were, were really interested. And I went to their veteran camp as a rookie, played in a handful of uh, preseason games and then was cut went to a CBA team that drafted me in the first round and they were going bankrupt and had to get cut there because they couldn't afford to pay me. I went to, uh, after that to Belgium and uh, was totally miserable for two weeks left and came home and then went to Venezuela for about a month and a half to try to make a little cash and came home after my first year as a pro with maybe about, I think $10,000 in my bank account. And, uh, my wife's looking at me like, you want to be a pro, huh? The next year is when we were pregnant with Jocelyn, and uh, I had to just kind of go somewhere where I could make a little bit of cash and uh, went to Sweden. But after my first three years as a pro, I probably made, I don't know, I don't even know in total, I don't even know if it was $50,000. And so then it was a it was a real important time for me to kind of look in the mirror and say, you know, uh, it's time to fish or cut bait. It kind of rededicated myself. Uh, and then some opportunities in the CBA. I was a CBA all-star, and that opened up some doors to get to higher higher levels in, in Europe and, and start to actually make a living. But So my point being, early on, we didn't have much money to live where we wanted. We had to live with family. So we spent time living with my parents out in Tura, and then, and then her folks bought a retirement home that they were going to live in you know, years down the road, and so we rented that from them. So we really didn't have much choice. But then when we got to where you know, we were making some pretty good money. We were so in love with Missoula, just not the comfort of having lived there forever, but just the people, the place. I mean, you guys know, and, and that's what attracted us to come back and, and want to raise our, our families there. But for Lisa, it was tough. I mean, Colt, you know, uh, our, our kids, they would start school in Missoula in the fall, and then they would fly over usually late September, early October, and I'd already been over there for a month, month and a half. Lisa would bring them back in March to finish the last few years with, with their classmates. All the while, they went to school in, in, in Europe as well. So it was, it was tough for her going back and forth alone with the kids, but we think it was a great experience for our children to, to be able to go to school with their friends in Missoula. But then when they came you know, to spend time with dad over there, you know, jumping into international schools and getting that experience as well. Grizz Greats, the Coaching Tree podcast, is brought to us by our friends at Stockman's Bar. Coulter, Stockman's Bar has been a staple in downtown Missoula for, well, ever, as far as I'm aware. And they have certainly been supporting Montana athletics and Montana basketball for a long time. In fact, an absolutely outstanding documentary called The House That Rob Built, chronicling the life and times as a head coach and, in general, the influence on women's basketball and basketball in general of Robin Selvig, was released and the documentary post-party, not surprisingly at all, hosted and held at Stockman's Bar. 130 former Lady Grizz came to the debut of that film, and then most of them went and enjoyed some delicious draft beers or maybe a cocktail. And, of course, Dobie's teriyaki. The history and lineage of University of Montana men's basketball is literally written on the walls there. Literally. I was reading an article 
about Mike and Donnie Larson's father, who started Stockman's Bar way back in the day. This article was from the Missoulian circa, I think, 1979. Wow. And it was talking all about his allegiance to Grizz Hoops, his love of Judd Heathcote and Jim Brandenburg. What a perfect connection to the University of Montana men's basketball program. They've always been supporters, both in terms of employing student-athletes and supporting the team. And you can find the Grizz team stopping in there for lunch at Dobie's Teriyaki quite often on the, when they go on their upcoming road trips as well. Stockman's Bar from open to close. They have $3 beers, and if you get yourself some Dobie's, they even have $2 beers. But the beers are always cold, and they have a variety. It's not just domestics. It's not just a couple crafts. It's every beer that is on tap. And they also have drink specials throughout the week. And, of course, they still got poker going on in the back as well. So head on down to Stockman's Bar. Fierce supporters of the University of Montana men's basketball program for more than 50 years. What was the tipping point that made you want to come back stateside and, and finish your professional career in the CBA? Yeah, you know, um, I, I kind of I had an injury. I, I ruptured my plantar fascia and missed about almost a season and a half at the end of my career. Uh, and then I had a, a stint with uh, the Las Vegas Bandits in the International League just to show that I was healthy again. And I actually went and played in a tournament in Italy in June, and we, we won that tournament just to show that I was back and really felt good about, you know, my game and everything. I think I was maybe 33 at the time and thought I had a couple more good years in, in the tank. But we had, uh, had lost my father-in-law, Bob McLeod, had passed away the spring before, and my dad's health was really declining. But I was about to sign a deal. I was talking to two teams, one in Spain and one in, uh, in Portugal. And then prior Orser left Don Holstaff. He got the Colorado School of Mines job in late August. And uh, I was just about to sign and leave. And then Don Holst called and said, what do you think about being, you know, our third assistant? You know, I'd spent a lot of time in my playing days working out with the Grizz players. And so I had a good, good relationship with a lot of them. And we had a, a real frank conversation over the weekend. My wife and I just talking about, you know, was it time to move on? And we decided, you know, we, we knew that the Grizz program, you know, needed uh, a little bit of, of I, I don't know, I thought maybe I could jump in and kind of get my career going and, and help bring a little something back. And shoot, that year we, we went to the NCAA tournament, and it was a tough decision because, you know, when you, you want to play until, you know, you fall down and, and you know it's time to, to move on. And I didn't feel like I had reached that point, but, we also said, okay, maybe somebody upstairs is telling us something and it's time to move to phase two. And it was interesting because my first year on staff there, my salary was at a point where I think I made more in a month overseas than what I was making that year. But I did get to coach at my alma mater, learn under some really good head coaches, uh, and it helped, I think, kind of maybe get my coaching career on a little bit of a fast track. So very appreciative of that opportunity. Coach, everybody, I think, looks at basketball coaches that were former players and go, well, yeah, okay, it's obvious. You played, you were in the sport, and then you became a coach, and sure, that transition is there. Clearly, that was something that you had thought about and decided to do, but why? I mean, you could have done anything, and you had you know, a, a, a nice career and could have lived wherever you wanted. So what was it about coaching that you said, yeah, this is what I want to do next? Well, I knew I, knew I wanted to somehow stay involved with the game. For a while, I thought I, would, I was going to be a, uh, an agent. And then I kind of learned through through the years that you got to be a little bit of a shark and, and uh, you know, a little bit of a, a shyster, I guess. And I didn't know if I was going to be able to do that. And then I, I got to where the last few years of my career, when I came home, I, like I mentioned, I was working out a lot of the players in the offseason from Montana. And it just seemed like, you know, that it would be a, a, a natural transition. But I wasn't positive until I got the phone call from Don Holst offered me the job and again you know I, I thought maybe I could have a, a positive impact on the Grizz program and shoot who who wouldn't if you wanted to go you know and, and coach who wouldn't want to coach at their alma mater to get their start and be able to stay at home so all those things working together you know made it made it a, a no-brainer for me and uh, you know that was a tough year we went to the NCAA tournament but we all got let go uh, at the end of the year and you know here I was six months into being a college assistant and, you know, out of a job, even though, you know, Wayne Hogan at the time had kind of mentioned, listen, you know, don't, don't worry about it. You know, whoever we hire, you know, we're going to, we're going to try to ask that they keep you on. And uh, I was fortunate to, to stay on. And that was, 
a unique situation as well. And I was an assistant for Don Holes, for Pat Kennedy, and then for for Larry. Not too many assistant coaches survived three different uh, three different head head guys. So I was very fortunate again, like I mentioned. I want to ask you a little bit more about that year that you guys won the Big Sky Tournament, but then, like you said, the staff gets let go. I know it was a sort of a disappointing regular season, but then he got hot at the right time. Never forget the putback dunk that Dan Trammell had to win that yeah. game in the Big Sky Tournament. So what was just the roller coaster of emotions, like going through sort of a frustrating year, getting hot, going to big dance, but then getting let go right after that? Yeah, that was, that was a tough time. And, and for me, being so green my first year, it was a real eye-opener. You know, and, and, and I know it was a tough decision for the university, and, and it wasn't a popular one, obviously, as we all learned, because Don Don was so highly respected. And, you know, shoot, I think he won the regular season championship one year, and then we won the tournament uh, his fourth year to go to the NCAAs. And you think that's the ticket, you know, to, to keep your job or to get an extension, and that uh, just wasn't in the cards that year. And and it was tough for me being the guy that was, was held over by the next staff because, you know, that, that was Coach Kennedy was had so much success at Florida State, but he wasn't from the Montana tree, and yet I'm the guy that the lone holdover, so I'm getting it kind of from both sides. It was, it was tough, but, you know, it also helped me really mature uh, quickly, um, you know, as a coach and, and understanding all the things that go in, in and out of it. Really interesting, too, because you hold over, and you already mentioned it. I mean, in five years at Montana, you were an assistant coach for three very different guys, from Don Holtz to Pat Kennedy to, to Larry Kristoviak. What was it like in each of those uh, instances, and what did you take from each of those guys as you were you know, preparing for what ultimately became you being a head coach? Yeah, you know, I, I did. I learned different things from all three of them. You know, with Pat, Pat was uh, on the, the National Association of Basketball Coaches committee and so his two years in Missoula he spent a lot of time going to meetings and I was kind of thrown in the fire you know trying to help him learn what was Montana basketball all the key figures you know in and around uh, you know not just Missoula but the state Uh, and then running practices when 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 he was traveling so I, I got like I said baptism by fire there but you know he was a very offensive minded guy of course, Don and, and Larry were, were, were kind of a combination defense and offense. You know, they knew the program and what, what worked at Montana. Um, and, and, you know, the big thing with, with Larry, you know, Larry was great because he understood the importance of family and that, you know, you, you get in, you get your work done, you can make time for family where a lot of head coaches aren't that way. They want you to burn the midnight oil and you don't, you don't see your, your wife and kids you know, for, for essentially six months once the season started. So, you know, as I got to be a head coach, I, I took some really valuable things from each of them uh, in how to run a program, how to manage and, and, and handle your, your staff and your players. And so uh, thankful, thankful to all three of them for, you know, for the things that I've learned and incorporated in, in our programs. You mentioned Pat Kennedy not being from the tree. I think that's such an interesting fold in the whole dynamic of this story because I know Wayne Hogan brought him in, and at the time, he was such a dynamite hire. I mean, the guy had been to multiple Sweet 16s at Florida State, and he had been a stud recruiter at DePaul. I mean, he put as many guys in the NBA as anybody literally in the country. And uh, But then he came in, and it just never seemed like it really meshed, but then he kind of just saw his way out so quickly, too. It was a whirlwind of a time at Montana what do you think of just that moment in Montana history? And then when Coach Kostoviak took over, how are you guys able to get it back on track and then uh, get Montana back into the realm of being a, a regionally and nationally elite program? Well, I, I think the allure of bringing in Coach Kennedy was what just what you mentioned. You know, he was a national-named coach. Um, you know, went to the Elite Eight with Bobby Sura and Charlie Ward. Um, you mentioned the other Sweet 16s and, and the recruiting. And I, I think... What they thought at the time was, you know, here's a guy that could come in and turn things around uh, and, and put a, a, you know, a perennial championship type team together in a hurry. Um, and I just think, you know, it just, you've got to be able to recruit to Missoula and the kind of players that will survive there and understand how great it is, but, but it's not for everybody. And, and so I think just, it's, un, it's unfair because I don't think, I think in time, Pat would have got that done and, and, and proven, you know, his worth. And it was just 
uh, a deal where maybe he wasn't comfortable in, in after a couple of years and felt like he needed to get back to where he could do things and bring in the kind of players he was used to coaching. And, you know, he eventually went back to the East Coast. And then when Larry came in, you know, we just got back to the, you know, roll up your sleeves. Let's let's get the kind of student athletes here that thrive in Missoula and in our conference. Um, you know, and, and, you know, we didn't win the regular season, but Larry was really good at getting that team to peak at the right time. And, you know, we won back-to-back championships in the, in the tournament and, you know, in the big win against Nevada in the first round. So I think it was just that commitment to, you know, getting the blue-collar guys and the right kind of people that would buy into our style of play and um, certainly had had uh, instant success there. And then, you know, when, when he went on to the NBA and we were able to take over, it took us a couple of years. We lost some incredible players from those championship teams to get back there consistently. And that's what it's all about, you know, especially, well, at any level, but it's hard to maintain consistency. And um, we felt like, you know, we, we got to that point and, um, you know, going to the NCAA tournament a few times and, uh, obviously, you know, affording us the opportunity to, to move on. And that's the tough thing. You know, we're talking about, you know, Montana coaches, and it, it just it just seems like it, all of us are, you know, a lot of us are former coaches. And, and I think it's – Fran Fraschilla said it best when, when he mentioned that he thought the Montana coaching tree was – Montana, the job, was an incubator to, to really successful coaches. And I don't know what it is, how you can put your finger on it, but – it certainly does, you know, each coach that succeeds the, the prior just takes the program a little bit further and, and continues the success. And obviously, Trav and what he's doing is making all of us proud, uh, you know, in, in the current time. You know, I want to ask you specifically about Larry because you guys have such an unbelievable basketball life of both parallels and rivalry and, and all of that. But you play together, then he's the coach, you're the assistant for him, he goes to Utah, you're now at Oregon State, he recruited your son, I mean, my goodness, what a jerk, how could he possibly <laughs> do something like that to you? So, But but talk about just your 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 friendship, your apprenticeship, your teammate, your, your life with Larry Kristoviak. Well, I mean, gosh, we've 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 been connected more more for more years than than probably anybody else in the profession. You know, obviously playing with him, kind of learning the ropes, having him kick mud in my face a little bit when I first got there, and you know, then then me trying to return the favor when I kind of got to the level, and and then coaching together was was interesting. I, I it wasn't a no brainer right away, but when he flew into Missoula for the press conference. As soon as he got off the plane, he called and met. He wanted me to meet him for dinner, and it was sure fun. It was sure fun working together with him again uh, from a from a different angle. We weren't players at that point; we were coaches, uh, and learned a lot from him. Um, you know, and, and and really become pretty good friends. And I remember when I got the Oregon State job, calling him and asking him uh, for some advice on I can't remember the topic, and and he goes, well, I just want you to know, you know, we've we've been boys in the past, but now we're competitors, so you're on your own. <laughs> and, and I I'll tell you another quick story. You mentioned him recruiting Trey, so we can't call our prospects until June 15th after their sophomore year. And our family was down in Palo Alto bringing Jocelyn home from Stanford, and we were staying in a hotel, and it was the night of the 14th, and so the the clock hit midnight, and I, I set my alarm for about four in the morning, and I went in the bathroom and and made sure Trace's phone was on silent. And I left him a voicemail offering him a scholarship uh, to, you know, to, to Montana, or I think I was at Montana at the time. And Larry, being the sly fox, he called at like 7 in the morning. And Trace went out in the hallway and talked to him. And he came in, big smile on his face, and said, well, I just got my first official offer. I said, yeah, think again, check your voicemail. And so then he went and listened to his voicemail and, and, and saw that I called in the middle of the night with his, his actual first official offer. So it was kind of a neat deal we still joke about today. <laughs> That's awesome. I love it. Well, we'll get into your time as the head coach of Montana and then now into Oregon State, but i got to ask you one more question about your time as an assistant. When you guys won that game in the NCAA tournament in 2006, definitely one of the thrills of my college time. I remember we were down at the press box and we were like, are they actually going to win? They're actually going to win. And I think we drank about 17 pitchers of beer while we were down there <laughs> celebrating the thing. It was so fun to watch. But what do you remember about going into that game? Because that whole game 
it seemed like you guys were so confident. And that game now sort of is a moment in time because no Big Sky team has yeah. been able to break through and win since then. So what do you just remember about that entire experience and that entire group of guys? Well, so much of the NCAA tournament's about your matchups, you know, and, and I know I know we didn't have great success the years we went and the year we got blitzed by Syracuse, we were decimated with injury. Will Cherry should have never played and he showed with his true heart, you know, we we're missing Matthias Ward. But when we drew Nevada and they were a very good team, you know, that there wasn't that awe factor because shoot, with Larry and I, we they were in the league when we played in the big sky. And so we kind of sent that message to our team and, and, you know, Larry put together a plan, um, you know, that, that made our guys confident. It wasn't anything we hadn't done all year. So I think there was a comfort level there. Uh, and then obviously what it comes down to is, as you get to that point, your, your horse has got to carry a player's got to make plays. And I remember, you know, Andrew Straits and, and, um, you know, Criswell and Virgil, those guys really stepped up had a great performance and we frustrated the heck out of him and got the win. And, and, and then we shoot, we gave Boston college a heck of a battle, you know, the, the, the next round, but it was a great experience. Obviously a lot of joy, you know, in that locker room afterwards. And that's kind of funny, you know, the hotel that we drew, uh, we played in Salt Lake, oddly enough at the Huntsman center, but the hotel that we drew didn't expect us to move on. So they had given all of our rooms away the next day. And they expected us oh to find God. another hotel. Yeah, and Larry, Larry went nuts on the management. <laughs> yeah, no I bet he did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, that was kind of a funny little side story to that deal. But, you know, uh, what's, what's interesting is that I still stay in touch with probably four or five of the players from that team and just such great memories. And like you mentioned, that's the last time a Big Sky team's won in the NCAA tournament and very, very memorable season the way it all culminated i think we maybe finished third in the regular season i can't even tell you who we beat in the first couple of rounds of the big sky tournament but you know winning that thing and cutting down the nets and then then going and winning a first round great game was obviously a, a great memory for us grizz greats the coaching tree is brought to you in part by mike Bryan of berkshire hathaway real estate and at berkshire hathaway real estate Mike and his fellow agents pride themselves on providing the community of Western Montana with full-time real estate professionals who are here for you whenever you need them. Their reputation as the state's most knowledgeable and available real estate group has helped them build unmatched trust in the Garden City and around the state of Montana. Mike Bryan has been a real estate broker in Missoula for more than 20 years. He has followed the Grizz for more than 50, and he is one of the most passionate Grizz basketball fans you will find anywhere. He's a member of the Grizzly Round Ball Club, and he still plays basketball twice a week. He fancies himself a pretty good hooper, and he says if Travis DeCure ever needs him, he still has one year of eligibility remaining, so give him a call. And if you need anything in the real estate world, whether it's commercial, residential, or anything in between, give Mike Bryan at Berkshire Hathaway a call, 406-370-8734. That's 370-8734. Mike Bryan, Berkshire Hathaway Real Estate. Berkshire Hathaway, your local real estate experts. Well, Coach, in 2006, uh, Coach Kristoviak, of course, gets his opportunity as an assistant in, in, the, in the NBA, and you get the keys to the car, as it were, and for the first time, you're a first-time head coach, and it's at your alma mater in Montana. Now, you've been there five years as a coach, uh, and so, you know, obviously familiarity, but it's got to be a different dynamic, of course, when you become the head coach. And was there a certain... I don't know, what was your emotion about that at that time, you know, saying, okay, it's it's finally my show? Oh, I, was, I think I was a bumbling idiot at the press conference. I remember having <laughs> it up up at the Sky Club, and, you know, you, you're looking down and uh, saw my saw my mom there. Of course, you know, we had lost my dad in 02, uh, my wife and kids, and then so many, so many of my friends and, and you know, the – the donors that were there when I was a player and, and, and then the ones they were still there supporting us as coaches. Uh, it was just a lot of emotion there. I mean, if you've not, if you're in coaching and you can, you can't imagine what it's like to be the head coach at, at your alma mater. And then especially a place that brings so much pride and, and success as the university of Montana program. And it was, uh, it, it was, uh, it was a bit unreal at first. And uh, I remember, you know, Larry, calling and telling me listen it's going to be a, a real whirlwind for about six months but once you get through that you're going to settle in just fine and and uh, just you know as assistant coaches we have all the answers and we're never wrong right everything just seems 
you know, so black and white. But when you move over 18 inches and sit in that next chair and you realize that every decision you make uh, has repercussions, um, you know, it can be a little bit overwhelming. But I think those experiences I had with the head coaches I was fortunate enough to to work with, you know, really helped me. Uh, And, you know, we had a really fun first year. And then I remember, um, you know, we, we took a couple of gambles on kids that we thought would be really good players for us going into year two and neither one ever put on a uniform and they were both projected starters uh, and we really struggled I thought that was one of my our staff's better years coaching because we were in a lot of ball games when we were we were uh, undermanned and um, I remember after year two kind of drew a line in the sand and said listen we're we're not you know going to take any gambles on players we're getting the kind of players that have succeeded here and we're going to win because we're the tougher team, the more disciplined team, and the team that plays balls together. And that's when we really started to turn things around and, and then got us in the position where we won it, you know, three out of four years. What was the biggest challenge when you first became a head coach? Do you remember anything specific that was such a difference that maybe uh, you didn't expect? You know, the big thing was was finding out the kind of players that were going to respond to the way, you know, that I coached. I think – you know, early on, you, you, you want to prove that you're worthy. So you get a little caught up in wanting to do things a certain way. And, and then after you just kind of relax and settle in, it becomes a little more natural. But you know, the big thing was getting the kind of players that you thought, you know, everybody was going to really, really appreciate. And instead of, you know, knowing that and trusting your eye and your gut, getting the kind of character, you know, it was all going to work out in the end. So I think that was probably the biggest thing, just proving that you're, you know, we're going to be worthy of that opportunity. And, you know, fortunately we were able to get there. In 2009, 2010, you go to the first NC2A tournament of, uh, of three, as Coulter mentioned, three and four years. What was that like for you though, as a head coach to be going to the tournament for the first time as the head man? That's what you wanted to, you know, when the big sky, you got a one, you know, one, one team makes it to the NCAA tournament, one bid league. So you want to prove, because that's the ultimate. And so when we were able to accomplish that, it was like, okay, you know, we've arrived. And and then you look at the manner in which we did, um, you know, coming back from, you know, down 20 at halftime at, at Weaver against Weaver state. Um, it was something. And, 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 and then that bus ride home was incredible. Uh, you know, and, and, and so it was nice. And then we went and we had a heck of a heck of a performance against New Mexico, almost upset them in the first round. And, and so it was neat that we we felt like we'd established ourselves, you know, and, and, and then that kind of set up the momentum, uh, you know, for what we were able to do the following years. One of the greatest performances ever in Grizz Athletics history, Anthony Johnson, in that game to lead you guys all the way back. What do you remember about the zone that he got into? Because that was just out of, out of this world, the, the zone he got into to lead you guys to that win over Weaver. Oh, yeah, it was incredible. I mean, I remember walking through uh, the locker room at halftime down 20 and kind of asking the staff, okay, what what do we do here? What's our approach in the locker room? How do we get these guys turned around? And, you know, one coach said, oh, you know, we need to bang the lockers and yell and scream. Another coach said, you know, we just need to take a calm approach. There's 20 minutes left. And then it just clicked. I said, I know what to say because we had been there a month earlier in the regular season and we were down. 10 at halftime and we came out and, and took an eight point lead in the second half. So I told that to the guys and I said, how many point turnaround is that fellas? And you could have heard a pin drop. I think the guy's trying to do the math. And finally <laughs> our walk on, our walk on football player, Justin Roper, the quarterback says that's an 18 point turnaround coach. And I said, well, there you go. I said, all we need to do is, is a repeat performance, but then make the plays down the stretch to turn it, to our favor this time around. And I remember taking the court with about a minute to go in halftime and Anthony Johnson ran back into the locker room to use the restroom. And he said, you're going to see a different man, this half coach. And sure enough, he just went nuts, you know, 34 points in the half scores our last 21 consecutive. It was just an unreal, unreal performance. And Jim Valvano's uh, brother, Bob was on the call there for ESPN. And he's to this day, I bumped into him a couple of years ago, still says that's the most unbelievable postseason effort that he's seen to this day. 
And then after that group of players graduated, then it seemed like you guys really turned the corner as a program, and you got some premier guys like Will Cherry, like Kareem Jamar, and it seemed as if you really started to finally make the program yours. How did you turn the corner there and then have so much success your last couple years in Montana? Well, you know, it started with Anthony Johnson. You know, he was our first big junior college signee. Also, Brian Qualley and, and, and Derek Selvig, they were, they were actually our first two commits as, as a staff. And, uh, you know, we had been recruiting them uh, when I was an assistant, but they, they signed going into my first year. So having them in year two kind of starting to learn and develop, adding Anthony Johnson, and then having that miraculous finish, now all of a sudden we, we, we really got everybody talking Montana basketball again. And that allowed us to go after, you know, Will Cherry came in, I think, with, with Brian Qualley, and you mentioned Kareem Jamar, and then the success just continued. What was amazing about our run there for a couple of years, you know, we won three out of four championships. The, the one we didn't, we lost at Northern Colorado uh, on, a, on a, a, a real, I wouldn't even call it a 50-50 call late in the game, but anyway, Otherwise, it could have been four in a row. We lost Sean Stockton the night before. He didn't play in that championship game. But it was amazing through a lot of adversity, a lot of injury. Uh, I think we, I think we won, broke the school, uh, the, sorry, the conference record for 25 consecutive league wins. And we had lost Will Cherry for our last three league games. We lost Matthias Ford uh, for the season with eight games to go. But you talk about next man up mentality. We just got to where our guys believed no matter who we were playing or where we were at or who we had on the court, we weren't going to get beat. And it was really, really enjoyable to be a part of that and see the confidence that grew from that group we were able to, we were fortunate enough to coach. You know, an opportunity comes up at Oregon State and, and, you know, certainly in any profession you want to think about, okay, well, you know, how far can I take this thing and what level can I get to? But also Missoula is, is really your home at that point. You know, you've been there a long time coaching, playing, et cetera. And I, you already alluded to the fact it was a difficult decision, but what was that like for you to try and, you know, assess, okay, yes, I do want to do this. I want to try for this and then pull the trigger and, and actually make it happen. Well, it was, it was just, uh, you know, the point where, uh, you know, and I'd gotten advice from a lot of the coaches that had been, been to Montana that, you know, five, six, seven years is about the max. And you've got to, you know, if you want to move on, you've got to look for the opportunity because, you know, in, in, in this game, you know, if you're somewhere for too long, you know, you, you, it's just rare that you can stick somewhere forever. And so we kind of had that in the back of our mind and, we had had opportunities at, at other places um, over that time span, but what we said was it was going to take a real special place to take us away from such a special place. And the opportunity arose here at Oregon State, and a lot of my friends were like, you were saying special place. You know, they haven't won there in 25 years. But I remembered growing up in Spokane, shoot, at one point Oregon State was the fourth winningest program in the country. Uh, and so I, I thought – it was similar to Missoula, great college town. You could do things the right way. And then it was, I knew it was going to be a challenge. And I think in my career, it was at the point where I was really looking forward to uh, a little bit of a different challenge and, uh, and yet do it at a place that, that had a lot of similarities to Missoula. So it was a perfect fit for us. Um, you know, and then a little bit of the factor was with Trace coming out, you know, would I be able to have a chance to coach him at Montana or if I was at a higher level? you know, would that, would that maybe have given me a little better shot to coach him? So that, that came into effect, although I think he would have had a hard time saying no to Missoula and University of Montana as well, but it's afforded us a great opportunity to share in this experience for sure. What was the most eye-opening part about taking a Power 5 job? Just, you know, get, getting to the, the, you know, the highest level, you know, and, and wanting to get to where you're competing against the best, you know, night in and night out and, and seeing, you know, what you can do at that level. And, and also, you know, we had some great players at Montana, and and I would, I would, I wouldn't be a stretch that, you know, a handful of the ones that starred for us there, I thought, I you know, could probably have competed in the Pac-12, but but getting to where you maybe get to recruit from a, just a little bit different pool and compete at the highest level, that's that's really what it kind of came down to. And again, I can't stress enough, it wouldn't have just been anywhere. You know, we really we really think Corvallis has a lot of similarities to Missoula and we're enjoying our time here, that's for sure.
Wayne Tinkle. You guys are the best, man. Cole, tell, tell the family and everybody hello. I will. Thanks so much, Wayne. That All was right. awesome. Who do businesses throughout the Pacific Northwest turn to for innovative internet and voice solutions? Blackfoot. Our cybersecurity, network uptime, ergo, and SD-WAN solutions ensure your organization is online all the time. Learn how Blackfoot can enable your business to move forward. Call 406-541-5000 or visit goblackfoot.com slash grizzgreats. Blackfoot. Connect to more. This has been Grizz Greats, the Coaching Tree Podcast, Episode 8 with Wayne Tinkle. Coulter, it's easy to see when you talk to a guy like that, especially in an extended conversation like that, why so many people are drawn to Coach Tinkle. As outgoing and personable a guy as you could seem to come across. He's always been one of the nicest guys on the planet. I think that's what makes him a great recruiter, and I think it's what makes him able to reach kids. And I think that one thing that maybe is he doesn't get enough credit for is the success he's had at Oregon State. He is the great example of the what-have-you-done-for-me-lately attitude in college hoops that is just exhausting. There's been a lot of talk about Wayne Tinkle's position at Oregon State recently, but it's only because he got them to the NCAA tournament. And what people don't remember is that Oregon State was never even in the conversation for the NCAA tournament. They hadn't been in the NCAA tournament since Gary Payton was right. in college. And now he's been trying to meet his own level of expectation. Talk about a space of time that is only going to grow in terms of how special it will be in the psyches of the Tinkle family to just not even have you know father and son in terms of the coaching player deal, but really the entire family on board all the way through. I mean, I can't think of another scenario like that that I'm aware of, and that's a very tight knit family. You know, they 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 care a lot for one another, and it's great to see that on you know the sidelines on display each and every game. And I'll tell you this: I didn't know anything about Jim Brandenburg before we started this podcast. I knew about the legend of Mike Montgomery and Stu Morrill, certainly, but had never really had a chance to speak to those gentlemen. Blaine Taylor was almost a figment of my imagination as the Grizz coach when I was a tiny kid. But never really. You had- were never a tiny kid, Coulter, <laughs> let's be clear. <laughs> but but it was a surreal experience for me to interview him. But then Don Holst it became more humanized because I had been around Don Holst before yeah. I had talked to him a little bit. Larry Kristoviak was the coach when I was in college. So I had reported on him and I had several friends that played with him. But Wayne Tinkle is completely different than anybody else in this coaching tree. Jocelyn Tinkle is the same age as my brother. They went to school together from kindergarten on. He was our neighbor. He was our neighbor. And so I didn't really ever think of Coach Tinkle as Coach Tinkle. I just thought of him as Wayne, Mr. Tinkle. Yes. Jocelyn's dad. Right. Forever until he became the actual head coach. And then that was an interesting experience too, getting to cover someone who you'd gone to church with, had a hamburger at the barbecue with. Right. Who's carpooling with your family. But I'll tell you this, the reason I'm bringing the personal element into this is that the authenticity of their family's love for each other is not fake. And all this cheering and all the jockeying that the girls do on the sidelines for Trace, that is authentic. And I think it's so cool yeah. that they've stayed so bonded. And the one thing you have to give a shout-out to, we, we talked all about Wayne Tinkle's Grizz lineage. Lisa McLeod is one of the greatest players in the history of the mm. University of Montana. No doubt. She's the one that's kept them all together. And Wayne talked about all his journeys across the globe and how I would be dead in Spain if it wasn't for my wonderful (laughs) wife. Probably true. But uh, they're they're an awesome family, and it's cool. I mean, who actually gets the chance to raise their family in Missoula and then coach their son at a Pac-12 school? It's a completely unique experience. Yeah. And it's so cool that they've gotten to go through it together. But the, the Tickles, a great family and definitely people worth admiring. Well, we hope you've enjoyed Grizz Greats, the Coaching Tree Podcast, Episode 8. Our thanks again to Coach Tinkle being very generous with his time. We sincerely appreciate that. Be on the lookout for bonus episodes and Episode 9 with the current head coach of the University of Montana. The most fascinating part about this whole thing in terms of the hype around the consumption of it is I think that the most anticipated episode is the one for the guy that's coaching right now. All the guys that have come before Travis Takir, amazing, epic storytellers. But this next one you guys are going to hear is different. And I think that Coach Takir has a completely different way of being than all the rest of these guys in such a phenomenal way. But you agree with me, Guess Travis Takir is one of the most captivating speakers that I know, period. And I can't wait to share this episode with the folks. 
I mean, I know this is the tail end of Wayne, so I don't want to ruin it here, but yes, I don't know that I've ever spoken to anybody who has the command of their profession that becomes evident in a question and answer session the way it becomes evident that Travis DeCure has that when he answers any question that you ask him really about anything. I mean, he, he, really he's got an anything. unbelievable breadth of experience and, and of life, but certainly about basketball. And he's absolutely one of my favorite human beings, period, and, and certainly to talk to. So uh, that one is, uh, like you said, highly anticipated for sure. And uh, we'll look forward to bringing that one to you as well. For Culture Nuanas, I am Ryan or Gus to tell, whichever. They're both me. Thanks for listening. Here's great to coaching treat.